So we are being with our inherent friendliness, friendliness of heart, dusting off whatever's covering it up. For some of us, it's kind of washing through and to see how it can be expressed, this friendly heart for the benefit of all beings. We have been practicing for five days and understandably some of that has been just becoming clear about whether this is even a good idea or whether this is something to do or how to go about it and maybe just letting go of outcomes for a little while. Our practice of metta is not at all in conflict with attending to our direct experience. In fact, it's important to be in contact with our direct experience as we practice. Metta is so often a practice of breath. That's happening right now, directly. And granted, there are words quoting, once again, from Ayakema. Ayakema has been kind of quite a quite a feature this retreat, hasn't she? She says, words are dangerous. They give an illusion of permanence. We are fed with words, but they are nothing but concepts. They are not real. Imagine a river. The word river can't proclaim the reality of flowing water. The word river is static. The essential quality of a river is that it flows. Loving kindness can never exist unless it flows from the heart. As long as it's just embedded in a word, it is nothing. It is worthless. It doesn't mean anything on its own in the same way that the word river is only a description that one has to experience in order to know it. If you say to a small child, river, it won't know what you're talking about. But if you put the child's hand in the water and let it feel the flow, then the child knows what a river is, whether it's familiar with the word or not. The same goes for loving kindness. The word is meaningless. Only when you feel it flowing from your own heart will you get an idea what the Buddha talked about in so many discourses. Life cannot be lived fully unless it's lived with both heart and mind. If one lives with one's heart only, one is prone to emotionalism, a very common error. Emotionalism means reacting to everything, and that doesn't work. The mind has its rightful place. One also has to understand what is happening. Yet if one only understands well, one may be intellectually advanced, but the heart is not engaged. Both must go hand in hand, heart and mind together. One has to understand, and one has to use one's emotions positively 
emotions that are fulfilling and bring a feeling of peacefulness and harmony to one's own heart. Sharon Salzberg, another powerful teacher of metta, says that feelings are not necessary to practice. She says, love is, a, is not a feeling, it's an ability. Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. This is what we mean by embodying the practice. This is the difference between watching a cooking show and actually cooking something. <laughs> or listening to music versus playing a musical instrument. Becoming skilled in goodness becomes, becoming skilled in goodness requires actual practice, actual doing, and maybe doing it poorly at first. That's the thing about learning some things I'm, you know, apparently unwilling to do badly for a while. That's really all it is. So in this engagement of heart and mind and, and direct experience, let's just practice with dropping into the heart. So just perhaps notice if there are any thoughts, if there's anything coming into the thinking mind, we'll just observe and see if there's any thinking, judging, opinions, whatever's going on in the thinking mind. And just kind of feel into how that is, the sort of running commentary. And now dropping into the heart, just really letting the attention move down into that region in the upper body. Just sensing into what's here. Does the heart feel open or closed? Or maybe a little bit open? Does it feel warm or cool? Guarded or overflowing? What is your direct experience? And there doesn't have to be an idea about that. So we can notice our direct experience in the process of dropping into the heart, using the phrases. After a few days of working with the phrases, some people are using them, some people are finding that breathing with just one of the words, free, or peace or just breathing with the feeling of friendliness. These phrases can be a scaffolding to incline the mind to its natural friendly state. And here we are in these ideal conditions for practice. Great food, Nice people, quiet, 
harder to break the precepts, lots of meditation. This is all well and good. What about the next challenge that comes before you? It could be on the drive out of here. Our minds might already be turning towards what is next. Or if you've been working with the categories, the dear one, meta towards yourself, meta towards acquaintances or neutral beings, and then expanding this wish. Maybe there's been some consideration for practicing meta with a difficult one. Maybe you've already been dipping your toe into this practice. Being skilled in the opposite of anger and ill will is to take up the practice of metta. This line from the Metta Sutra is, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Anger is an experience of duality, of separation. It can be painful. It can also feel powerful more powerful than fear, which is sometimes what is underneath that. And even if you don't consider yourself an angry person, we can all just look at the state of politics and it doesn't take much to get totally worked up, maybe even to experience ill will. The example that comes to my mind of this is um, I had traveled to Southern Illinois uh, whenever we had that solar eclipse, however many years ago that was. And there I was with all my friends from there and the eclipse was happening. Like it was happening. We were on the grass and blankets. Here's this literal celestial event and they were complaining about politics in that moment. They could not help it. They could not stop. Here's what Ayakema says. Every thinking person bemoans the fact that there is no peace between nations. Everybody would like to see peace on this globe. Obviously, there isn't any. In this century, which he's referring to the previous century, in this century there has been a war somewhere practically all the time. Every country has an enormous defense system that uses a lot of energy, money, and manpower. This defense system is turned into an attack system the minute anyone makes even the slightest unfriendly remark or seems to be moving toward an invasion of airspace or territorial waters. This is rationalized and justified with, we have to defend the border of our country in order to protect the inhabitants. Disarmament is a hope and a prayer, but not a reality. And why? Because disarmament has to start in everyone's heart. 
or wholesale disarmament will never happen. Disarmament has to start in everyone's heart or wholesale disarmament will never happen. <coughs> the defense and attack that happens on a large scale happens constantly with us personally. We're constantly defending our self-image. If somebody should look at us sideways or not appreciate or love us enough or even blame us, that defense turns into an attack. The rationale is that we have to defend this person this country that is me, in order to protect the inhabitant, the self. Because almost every person in the world does that, all nations act accordingly. There's no hope that this will ever change unless every single person changes. Therefore, it is up to each of us to work for peace inside ourselves. That can happen if each ego is diminished somewhat and ego only diminishes when we see with ruthless honesty what is going on inside us. And we have the precept of not unleashing anger. It goes further, recommending that we seek its source that we get up close to it, that we appreciate it by looking carefully at it. It doesn't say don't feel anger, it says not to unleash anger, but to seek its source. To do this, we have to first accept it, acknowledge it, then we can understand it and see how we might practice with it. The Buddha says, hatred does not cease by hatred, but only by love. This is the eternal rule. The context of that quote, though, is here in this translation by Acharya Buddha Rakita. He abused me, he struck me, he overpowered me, he robbed me. Those who harbor such thoughts do not still their hatred. He abused me, he struck me, he overpowered me, he robbed me. Those who do not harbor such thoughts still their hatred. Hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. This is a law eternal. So this may bring us into the territory of forgiveness, or at least seeing our experiences differently. I want to first say about forgiveness that it can be complex. It can be a process. And to acknowledge that there can be a real social pressure or a pressure derived from our predominantly Christian culture to forgive and that can sometimes have a harmful effect if the time is not right to go in that direction. So individually, that's a process for each of us to explore. And this talk ex includes an exploration of it, but this is not a directive or a prescription for anybody. There may even be some important exploration 
of forgiving ourselves. In our tradition, we chant the Gata of Atonement in the morning. At one meant atonement. We acknowledge all evils ever committed by me since of old, all evil karma ever committed by me since of old. It's not even personal, but it is our responsibility to take care of it. To me, it feels like taking a shower, saying the gata of atonement. We bathe regularly, right? It's important to practice acknowledging our inevitable harms to others, our own inevitable, inevitable unskillfulness. We can't take responsibility for what we don't acknowledge. We can't repair a rift unless we are attending to it. And it isn't even a surprise. Of course we'll be unskillful. Of course we're subject to greed, anger, and ignorance. Jack Cornfield has a beautiful forgiveness meditation for self, others, and for those who have harmed us. I won't go through the whole thing in this, but I just want to share some of the words that are similar for each of those categories. The ones for forgiving ourselves goes like this. This is a part of it. For the ways I have hurt myself through action or inaction, out of fear, pain, and confusion, I now extend a full and heartfelt forgiveness. I forgive myself. I forgive myself. This is a way to be a friend to ourselves. It's hopefully part of being a friend to others, too. It's important to know how to repair relationships when they inevitably fray or rupture. The kind of outcome we might want might not always be possible, but we can at least employ the skills. We can at least keep our heart open and continue to not know what the situation even is, to not put a thought covering around a person or around ourselves, freezing them, freezing ourselves in a place. If we don't know, then there might be movement. If we don't know, then impermanence might even apply to a difficult situation we're in with someone. That said, meta can be incredibly powerful to bring to a situation or a relationship like this that feels stuck, that feels impossible, that feels painful. And it may not even change the relationship so much as it changes us. It can change our relationship to the issue to give us more room so that we can take another step if it presents itself. We may be ready to put down our anger or feel that it's served its purpose or is getting in the way. 
One survivor of domestic violence put it this way, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. Forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. I read an article years ago about a survivor of an assault who was at this point of considering letting go of her anger. And she came up with this brilliant idea of how to practice with this discernment process. And she created the anger chair. So she took just a folding metal chair and got some paint and a Sharpie and painted it and wrote words and phrases of anger all over it. And then she carried that chair everywhere she went, everywhere. It was with her all the time. She carried it to classes, on the bus, to her job, everywhere. And of course, people engaged with her in conversations about what this was, what this was, their own experiences with anger, how they held it or how they worked with it, and what it would be like to put it down. And these conversations were therapeutic. She was able to see the similarities in other people. She carried that chair for weeks until she was ready to put it down, to let it go. I find this story inspiring not so much for the outcome, though that is impressive, but the practice. That is a practice of deep acceptance. I don't know if she was practicing metta for herself, but this acknowledgement of what she was carrying, the willingness to fully embody and explore this aspect of her life was already here so fearlessly, so thoroughly, so honestly. This is the kind of attention that we can bring just by paying attention. It encourages this alignment with the flow of life. She could see where she had been stuck and decided that it was time to allow things to change. It may have been for her own benefit. And can that be okay? Loving-kindness, this is Ayakema again, loving-kindness can be cultivated in the heart with great benefit to ourselves. Someone once said, quite rightly, that's an ego trip. It is. As long as we have an ego, every trip we're on is an ego trip. <laughs> but at least this is one trip in the right direction. <laughs> This journey goes toward the ultimate destination, egolessness, because the more loving kindness there is in the heart, the less ego. The more the ego diminishes, the more love can come from the heart. When other people are taken into the heart, the self has to step aside, the self has to step aside to make room. Others are benefiting by that as a matter of course, but that is a secondary consideration. 
The only person that can lead to liberation is ourself. The only person we can lead to liberation is ourself. Everybody has to go alone, solitarily. Well, I think we all do it together, but... Anybody who would like to come along is welcome. The bandwagon is big and there aren't enough people on it yet. This is skillful means. So here's the other part of the Metta Sutra I wanted to share about. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. I think we say parent at Heart of Wisdom these days. So this feels like a lot to cherish all living beings in this way. So the Theravadan scholar and translator Thanissaro Bhikkhu offers some clarification about this. I think, that's, I think it's important and helpful. He says that metta means goodwill. And it's not about treating every person you encounter the way a mother would protect her only child. And to illustrate this, he tells a story about his teacher, Ajang Fuang, who he says, once discovered that a snake had moved into his room. Every time he entered the room, he saw it slip into a narrow space behind a storage cabinet. And even though he tried leaving the door open to the room during the daytime, the snake wasn't willing to leave. So for three days, they lived together. He was very careful not to startle the snake or make it feel threatened by his presence. But finally, on the evening of the third day, as he was sitting in meditation, he addressed the snake quietly in his mind. He said, look, it's not that I don't like you. I don't have any bad feelings for you. But our minds work in different ways. It would be very easy for there to be a misunderstanding between us. <laughs> Now, there's lots of places out in the woods where you can live without the uneasiness of living with me. And as he sat there spreading thoughts of Metta to the snake, the snake left. Metta is a wish for happiness, for true happiness. The Buddha says to develop this wish for ourselves and everyone else with Metta for the entire cosmos cultivate a limitless heart. But that doesn't mean that we need to take everybody home and take care of them. Tanisaro Biko says that in the sutras, the first set of metaphrases comes in a passage where the Buddha recommends thoughts to counter ill will. May these beings, free from animosity, free from oppression, and free from trouble, Look after themselves with ease. May these beings, free from animosity, free from oppression, and free from trouble, look after themselves with ease, this wish for difficult ones. So they're supposed to look after themselves with ease. This is what we're wishing for these difficult ones. We're not supposed to risk our lives for them. We're not directed to. We can apply that protectiveness though, 
to our own friendly mind. That's what we're protecting. So Thanissaro Bhikkhu translates that line this way, as a mother would risk her life to protect her child, her only child, even so should one cultivate a limitless heart with regard to all beings. We protect our limitless heart this way. Keep it open with the courage and ferocity, the superhuman strength of a parent or protector of children. I found on the internet, there was a page that had some stories of mothers protecting their children. This is not limited to mothers. Parents of any gender have this capacity, as do non-parents. That's true in the animal world. They're called alloparents or allomothers, A-L-L-O. And they're the aunties and other uh, members of, of animal communities that protect the babies too. So we, we also hear about people risking their lives to help or save total strangers sometimes. But anyway, in regards to the sutra, to protect our own limitless heart with this kind of courage. So here's a couple examples. These are brief. In 1982, in the small town of Lawrenceville, Georgia, Angelo Cavall Angela Cavallo's son, Tony, was working on his 1964 Chevy Impala when it came off the jacks and collapsed on top of him. Angela acted quickly, and with no hesitation, the middle-aged woman lifted the car up about four inches and held it while neighbors pulled Tony out. Lifted up a car. And this one. In 2009, Maureen Lee and her three-year-old daughter, Maya, were enjoying a hike on a trail near their home, located 40 miles north of Vancouver, Canada, when an 88-pound cougar pounced on Maya. Maureen wedged herself between the animal and her child and hurled it off. <laughs> she then picked up Maya and ran to a nearby house. Maya only suffered some cuts to her head and arm, and according to her father, Maya wondered, why didn't the kitty play nice? <laughs> it's this important to maintain our friendly mind and heart, even in the face of difficulty. So I want to share this story of Metta and of patience from Bhante Gunaratna. This is one of my favorite stories of metta. Stories of loving friendliness. He shares a few of them in here. This is just one. So there, um, his, his practice place is uh, called the Bhavana Society and it opened in 1985. When we bought the first 13 acres of land in West Virginia to establish the Bhavana Society, some friends asked, Bhante, 
why on earth did you choose West Virginia to buy land for a retreat center? Now, my grandmother's from West Virginia. My dad grew up there, and it's, I can only imagine it would be unusual. <laughs> kind of like the snake and the monk a little bit. <laughs> Why on earth did you choose West Virginia to buy land for a retreat center? It's not an atmosphere supportive of Buddha Dharma. That's what they said. It may not have been an easy choice, but we did our best. We went door to door, introducing ourselves to our neighbors. The family on the property closest to us could not accept us being there. I was naive and said, when we start the center, please come meditate with us whenever you like. My neighbor was seriously offended and said, you do any damn thing you want, I'm a Christian. That was exactly what my friends had warned me about. And for years afterward, that neighbor gave us lots of problems. We began inviting our friends for retreats and sometimes 20 to 30 people would come. Even before we had any buildings, we meditated sitting on the ground under trees. I instructed everyone to practice metta meditation, to send thoughts of loving friendliness wholeheartedly and not let resentment enter their minds. This neighbor's house was about 50 yards from the grove where we were sitting. And he and his wife started singing Christian hymns loudly to disturb us. But we enjoyed their singing. The woman's voice was sweet and she sang beautifully. The next time we meditated, they played drums using loudspeakers. They thought that the drumbeats would come only in our direction, but the sound dispersed all around and the other neighbors were disturbed. They telephoned the sheriff who came and stopped it. <laughs> so the next time we meditated, they shouted in the middle of the night. Again, we did not respond. So they fired a high-powered rifle in the middle of the night to scare the retreatants, but we never complained. We had a mailbox at the entrance to our land. It was shot at. We used duct tape to cover the bullet holes and continued to use the mailbox. Then it was clubbed. We still used it. Then it was uprooted and thrown away. <laughs> we did not do anything in response. Then dog excrement was put in it. When the mail carrier came and put the mail inside, he saw the excrement. So we bought another mailbox, which was then damaged in the same way. Then our neighbors spread the rumor that we were eating their dogs. They said they had lost eight dogs. Another neighbor told them, they're vegetarians. <laughs> they don't even eat meat. How could they kill your dogs? They circulated a petition against us, but the other neighbors refused to sign, telling them that Buddhists are peaceful people. They wanted to welcome to the neighborhood and not drive away. Our hostile neighbors had four small children. The parents encouraged them to throw stones at us, spit at us, and use foul language to insult us. The children did that. One winter, there was a lot of snow, and it was very cold. These neighbors didn't have enough firewood to heat their home. 
we invited them to come and take firewood from us. In spite of all the things they had done to us, they took the firewood and continued with their ways for another seven years. After that, the husband went away. We don't know where. We never saw him again. Then the children grew up and went away. A few years later, the eldest son returned to the Bhavana monastery as an adult and apologized. He said, when we were little, we didn't know anything. We did what our father asked us to do. I joined the Navy and I discovered that Buddhism is a peaceful religion. So I've come to say that I'm very sorry for everything we did to you. We accepted his apology and made him feel comfortable. We were pleased with this young man and wished him success in his search for truth. I tell this story because metta practice is not easy. Sometimes it takes a great deal of patience to practice loving friendliness. Now we have no shooting or drumming or shouting. All those years we sent metta five times a day during early morning meditation, breakfast time, lunch time, evening puja time, and evening meditation time. Perhaps sending all that metta eventually helped things on our neighbor's side, but I know it helped us. Let's continue to keep our hearts open together. Thank you.